Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. It can get messy, but so can love. Today we continue in our ongoing series called Table Manners. And if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 5. In just a moment, we're going to make our way through Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. So just hold your place and hold your horses. We'll get there in a minute. Because first what I want to do is catch us up. What we have been attempting to begin last week and as we continue through to the week just prior to Thanksgiving is a conversation about what it means to be together. And what we've been observing is that in the life of Jesus, He continually has these moments of teaching and healing and challenge and inspiration and transformation that curiously continue to happen around tables. What he's done, as I mentioned last week, is he has reached deep into the very soil of his Jewishness and he's lifted up to the surface a dominant image that keeps recurring and that is at the center of the hope of faith There's an ancient vision of a table that one day is coming at the end of the age, a messianic banqueting table where all who have been broken and all who have been crushed by life, all who have been forgotten, neglected, alienated, oppressed, may find a seat at the table with everybody else and be fed and be mended and be whole. And what I said last week is that Jesus, when he comes calling for you to follow him in pursuit of this kingdom that is coming, he calls us to live in such a way now that in many ways reaches ahead and pulls into the present that day which is coming. The word that I used last week was proleptic living. To live proleptically means to reach far into the future to something that is coming and grab it and tug it into the here and now and live in such a way now that the thing which is coming is actually breaking in among us. But it's not something that Jesus simply taught us. It's what he showed us how to do. Everywhere he went, he included the excluded Everywhere he went, he remembered the forgotten. (laughs) He brought into the center of the consciousness of the religious structures and powers of the day those who had been shoved to the margins of it. And what he did was eat with tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves and sinners of every flavor. And he kept doing it so frequently that he got a bad reputation. In fact, His reputation was that he was a glutton and a drunkard, but he didn't care. 
He kept doing it. And you know why? Because Jesus knew and proclaimed that the kingdom belongs to such as these. The kingdom belongs to those who have been broken and who are in need of wholeness and mending. And he calls us to do the same. So this morning, I wonder what it might look like to eat at the same table of Jesus. What it might look like to so order our lives to be in the company of him because I suspect that to be in the company of Jesus, it means that we are in the company of the fellowship of undesirables. And I just wanna talk a moment about what it means to be in the fellowship of undesirables. Luke chapter five, beginning in verse 27, we hear these words. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, that's, that's Matthew, sitting at the tax booth or tax collection station. And he, he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, I don't have to tell this crowd because you are biblical scholars and theologians. I don't have to tell you what you already know about tax collectors that in the first century they were the lowest of the low in the perspective of a first century Jew. They were the scum of the earth because they were Jews who were on the payroll of the empire. I mean, they got a paycheck from the very empire of Rome that was responsible for oppressing their neighbors. And the way it worked was Rome expected a certain margin and they would tax families, but if they could get by with elevating the taxes, they might exploit those families and make a little bit to pad their own pockets, and they did. And they did it so frequently and with such careless abandon that they were known as traitors, as those who had no heart, no integrity, that they were spiritually dead because how could you do that to one of your own? They, they outcast the, the tax collector as the lowest of the low and Matthew is a tax collector. And here comes Jesus and what's interesting to me is the immediacy with which Matthew responds to his call. There are very few words Jesus walks by says, follow me, and he follows. Now, Laura and I have been recently binging a new series to us. It's new to us because we were kind of late coming to it, The Chosen. Many of you have said, you gotta watch this show. I'm like, yeah, I might, sure, okay. But the truth you need to know about your pastor is that confession, I have never really enjoyed cinematic expressions of biblical things. I mean, I'm sorry if that disappoints you. Sorry, not sorry. But the truth is, most of the scriptural movies that have come across the age, there are some that may pass muster, but most of them, some of them are done on a very cheap budget with poor actors and terrible writing. And the character development is not well produced or developed throughout this. And it's just not a good, and it's sometimes a little bit cheesy. And the stories in this book are so worthy of more that I sometimes just kind of pass by and don't, I don't watch many movies about scripture. But The Chosen has messed me up. It's messed up, it's caused me to question my own premise about these things. 
because the writing is intelligent. The characters are well-developed. Listen, there is in this series, and you gotta watch it, trust me, the character who plays Matthew, Matthew, who this text is all about, they've developed his character quite well with some imagination and a little bit of liberty, which is okay when you're making a movie, right? They present Matthew as being a little bit, a little quirky, but but more than that, those of us who love people in our lives who have particular special needs, you will see Matthew and you will recognize that he is on some bit of a spectrum that fascinates me to consider the possibility that when given the choice of all humankind, Jesus chose among the 12 one who represents some particular peculiarities and peculiar particularities and welcomes him. There is a scene in The Chosen where they treat this passage and it is so compelling. He's at the booth there taking up taxes and he's there with a Roman guard who has become his friend. His name is Gaius and he's protecting him. He's there for security and they're in conversation about Matthew's life because he's an outcast, not only among his neighbors but among his his family. And then something happens when he walks by. I want you to take three minutes and hear this passage through the most creative of lenses. Take a look. You see the Parthian foot races last night? Darius ran like a gazelle. Jews don't go to foot races. Your old friend Simon himself used to run the wagering tables. We're not friends. Next. Okay, fine. So you did not go to the races? You stay home? I went to see my mother. Ugh, that would put me out too. She asked when you're going to give her grandchildren? She didn't ask. I thought your parents don't speak to you. I had questions I couldn't ask anyone else. A mother of a son with talent like yours should be proud. She's ashamed that I could use the talent that God gave me against God. Next. You're good at something. You found a way to make a living doing it. It's that simple. Must be nice to live in a world so simply ordered. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going? Guys? Let me go. 
Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're going to throw it all away. didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? Grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. Not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. I'm telling you, you got to see this series. Yet, what this scene reminds me is how many of us are living lives that are trapped in some version of our life that we never hoped would be our life. Do you know what it's like to feel that way or to know somebody who because decisions were made or they made the decisions, they, they, their lives took on this trajectory that they never, never would have chosen if they knew where it would end. And now their, their life is on this trajectory toward disappointment and, and despair and certainly all kinds of shame, and they don't know a way out. It reminds me of the words of Parker Palmer, who said this, there are moments when it is clear the life I am living is not the same as the life that wants to live in me. Do you know what that is like? To know that there is something down beneath the surface or the version of your life that you've projected into the world that wants to come alive and live and our good news we get to share with one another is that Jesus is the way out of that life and into the one that God intended from the very beginning for you. But I love the dialogue in the scene. Simon Peter is the one who comes up and says, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? What? Do you even know this guy? Well, you were confused too. You didn't understand when I called you. Yeah, but that was different. I'm not a tax collector. And then the line that may be the best line of the whole episode, maybe the best line of the entire series, get used to different. If you and I have any desire to abide with Christ, to spend time in the company of the Lord, we gotta get used to different. Because he's the one who sets a table with place settings for those we would never invite inside the dining room. If we wanna have company with Christ, we've got to get used to different. Because Christ parties with the fellowship of undesirables. So he goes to Matthew's home and Matthew throws a party, a banquet, and we read about it picking up in verse 29. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. 
Now, last week I told you that when you come across the word reclining, it's a euphemism that means table of welcome. In the first century, like in many places even today, the posture of dining with one another is reclining. Instead of sitting in a chair, they reclined in the first century. That was cultural, but more than that, in the text, it's a reminder of something powerfully symbolic. To recline with someone meant to be in an environment of safety and comfort and security where you were at home. And you and I do the same thing. I mean, now we'll invite people to our house and sometimes we'll light the candles, dress up nice and, and eat in the, well, in the dining room where nobody goes. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? But then other friends come over and you grab the food, sit on the couch, kick off the shoes because you're in an environment of safety. And on the day that Matthew threw a party for Jesus, it says that his, his house was filled with a large crowd of tax collectors and others. House bursting at the rafters and at the beams the, by those who knew what it was like to be Matthew. Other tax collectors who knew his story of shame, who had made the same kind of choices, but now it's too late. It's too late for me to change anything about it. So I'm just going to keep company with others who at least understand what it's like to be broken like me. You know, there is a certain solidarity that comes with at least knowing somebody who has the same scar as you, the same pain as you, the same sin as you, the same despair as you house is crowded there. One day, years ago, we went on vacation, and that particular year, my father was there, and my father and I decided it was time to go find a place. It's been a long time since we shot pool, billiards, if you want to make it sound more dignified. And we found this place. It was a hole in the wall. It was a dive, I'm telling you. It was called Oasis. Yeah, we walked into the place. The place smelled like 20-year-old cigarettes. Like smoke. And I promise you, I am not lying when I say when we walked in the door, the, the song that was playing over the speakers was, there's a tear in my beer. <laughs> we found a table and we began to rack up the, the pool balls for a game and I couldn't help but notice the curious diversity of people at the end of the bar. There was the bartender. She had been there for years. She reminded me of the personality of, remember the flow from Mel's Diner? She had kind of a toughness about her, been there, been around a, a bit. There was another who was at the bar and he had get, gotten off work. He was a construction worker. I could tell because of his work boots that had some dried cement around the bottom and he was talking to another who didn't work in construction. You knew he worked in a place with air conditioning because he had shed his jacket but his tie was still on but a little bit loose and they're in conversation. There's another three or four people spread about. And, and then... The door of the place flings open and this dimly lit spot is deluged with light and the shadowy figure comes through the doors and they know who it is because they call out his name, Harold. I mean, it was a scene straight out of the TV show, Cheers, you know, Norm. When Harold hears his name, I promise you, he assumes an Elvis posture and begins to sing, I'm a hunk of hunk of burning love, you know. <laughs> Harold had already been to one or two other stops on the way. Can I, I'm just, 
and he makes his way to the bar and Flo, we'll call her, had already what he was coming for because she knew he was there the night before and every other night. My father and I began to play pool and he cleaned the table with me, but as I was losing to him, I couldn't help but overhear. That's a nice way of saying, I was eavesdropping to the conversations happening at the bar. And the construction worker talked about his son, a Marine in Iraq. And he talked in such a way that told me he was simultaneously proud and afraid. And he was talking to the man who worked in an office somewhere and the man working with the loose tie told about his wife and how treatments were going for her cancer. Another man separate from those two were talking about he is now out of work and he doesn't know what his next move is. And of course, Harold was just telling jokes. They weren't really funny jokes, but you can tell that beneath the surface of the awkward and courteous laughter that was being given, there was a story two or three layers deep in Harold that made him show up at the same place again and again and again and again. And I stood back and I, I watched that scene. And it occurred to me, this really is a scene out of Cheers, and that's what made the theme song of Cheers like a, like a hymn of truth. Isn't it true that making your way in the world today it takes everything you got? Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You wanna be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You wanna go where everybody knows your name. And, and, and when I think about that memory, it is no surprise to me that his house was crammed with other tax collectors because sometimes you just gotta be in the company where you feel safe enough to abide and right in the middle of that entire motley crew is our Lord Jesus reclining among them in an environment of safety and comfort which is the only environment where true transformation can take place. Yeah. Oh, that we might be a people who could learn to be comfortable enough to recline with those who make us uncomfortable. Oh, that we might be a people who could get so used to different that our very bodily space, our very homes, our living rooms, dining rooms, our very church might be a place where any and all might choose to abide because they feel safe and not condemned and not judged or shamed because that's the only environment in which authentic transformation can ever take place. But careful, careful. You keep that kind of company and you get a bad reputation. Mm -hmm. The story continues with verse 30. Verse 30 says, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need for a physician, 
but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, before we can even get to the beauty of that answer Jesus gives, we have to understand what's with the anxiety of the Pharisees and the scribes? It's simply this. The more religious we get, the more intolerant we are of those who break the rules. They were angry because Jesus was breaking the rules. He, he was literally breaking the rules. He was living and behaving in such a way that was in direct contradiction to their Bible. Now you might say, well, no, he was living in contradiction to their interpretation of the Bible. Yeah, that's true too. But there are places where the Bible says, careful how close you get to sinners. Because if they are unclean and you're too close in proximity to them, there was the ancient belief that sin was a contagion, that you can somehow become unclean and unfit to abide in the temple and therefore you can't get near to God. So careful, you might catch something. And they were upset that Jesus didn't care about the rules. Be careful when you put piety above people. Careful as we go not to put orthodoxy and doctrine and right belief and right behavior above those who are actually literally broken, hanging on by a very thin thread because Jesus never did and Jesus never asked us to do the same. Instead, Jesus had some of his hottest, most holy fits of rage against those, well, in my job, Those who at times would put religious orthodoxy and religious practices above those who were just barely making their way. So he said, it's not those who are well who need healing, it's those who are sick. It's not those who are righteous, but those who are sinners that I've come to call to repentance. What does it mean to abide with Christ, it means to get comfortable with different and to allow Christ to do the transformation that only Christ can do. In fact, I think about, oh, as I think about how we sometimes put piety above people and as I awkwardly look for my place in the sermon, <laughs> he's not a machine, he's a man. Oh yeah, there we go, there we go. Do you know, do you know that Matthew tells the same story and Matthew preached way longer than 12 p.m.s, just saying, so. When Matthew tells the same story, he adds an Old Testament line from a prophet. He says, go and learn this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Not a system of religious orders and practices. I desire that your hearts would melt in mercy for those who are hurting. If you want to be righteous, learn to set a table for those who think there is no table for them. Yeah. Now, Nadia... Uh, Boltz Weber is a pastor who she, she started a church in Denver, Colorado, a church plant, and the name of her church is beautiful. The name of her church is called House for All Sinners and Saints, and I love it, and it draws all those who think that religion itself and church has, has shoved them out. One of her books that she wrote is called Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, and in that book, this is what she says. 
Never once did Jesus scan the room for the best example of holy living and send that person out to tell others about him. He always sent stumblers and sinners. I find that comforting. Beloved, we are, we are all simply a community of stumblers and sinners. And when we forget that we are they who stumble and we are they who sin, we tend to assume a posture of sanctity that puts everybody else in the category of the outside. To have fellowship with Jesus means to have fellowship with the stumblers and the sinners because that's who we are. He comes to call them to repentance. Now we gotta talk about that word for just a moment. Hold on for just a minute more. Can I have... Can I have five more minutes? Yes? Good. You, you give me five, I give five, that's ten. Good. <laughs> I stole that, that's not original. What's it mean to repent? A while back I was at a funeral, Laura and I were in another church in another city in another state. I wasn't conducting the funeral, I was just at it because somebody I loved was there. And I went to the restroom, and in the restroom on all the walls, there were these, these posters that, that had a message. It was over the sink, on the stalls, it was everywhere. You could not avoid seeing it, is what I'm getting at. And it had a message that on the surface looked like a, a benign message. It looked like something that made sense. This is what it said. It said, Jesus didn't eat with tax collectors and sinners in order to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them to call them to repentance. Jesus ate with sinners. He didn't sin with them. Know the difference. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I get it, and it's right. And I know what the motive was of the person who put it up there, which is, hey, careful the environment you keep, Careful the company you keep, lest you slip into patterns that are not representative of who you are and what God has called you to be. And yet at the same time, what's underneath the implication of that kind of message is, above all things, behave. Make sure that your reputation is not tarnished. Don't slip into sin. I get it. But when I read Jesus... He didn't much care about what the religious authorities thought about how he was behaving. What he cared about was the changed hearts of those. Because the implication is that you and I, if we keep company with sinners, that somehow we are gonna be the ones to call them to repentance. But beloved, we don't call people to repentance. Christ does. That's what we call grace. That we are all by grace welcomed at the table of the Lord and it is not us who can change anybody regardless of how we think or what we believe about the way they've ordered their lives. Our mandate is to love them in such a way that through us the very grace of Christ might create an environment of such safety and vulnerability that transformation emerges in God's good timing. That's all you and I are ever called to do. Be a space of grace. And sometimes we think that grace is like a, like a weapon we wield. I'll give you grace if you behave. I'll give you grace if you change. I'll give you grace if you stop doing this and start doing the other. I'll give you some grace, but that's not grace, beloved. It's like a transaction. That's work. 
And I heard Kirby Godsey, a former president of Mercer University in the most remarkable message at the Founders Day at McAfee School of Theology. And he's talking about forgiveness and he's talking about grace. And the trouble is we've gotten it reversed in the church. This is what he said. He said, we're not forgiven because we repent. We repent because we're forgiven. The word repent is the the Greek word metanoia. You know what metanoia means? It means to change the mind. You know what paranoia is, right? Para, to the side of. If you're paranoid, you're outside your right mind. But if you're in metanoia, it is literally a metamorphosis of the way you think. And if you and I follow the example of Jesus and allow our lives to be the safe space where every kind of human can recline and be comfortable in our company, then in time, transformation can happen. Not because we make it happen, but because when you are safe and your guard is down, you end up wanting to change. I can't help but believe that those who reclined with Jesus, Jesus called them to repentance, yes, but he didn't do it at dessert. He didn't stand up in the middle of a good time and say, all right, now knock it off. He was such an inviting presence of the holy that when you're with him long enough, you just want to change. We repent not to be forgiven. We repent because we're forgiven. 